Welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for being with us for another edition of our CRE Executive Roundtable. Today we're joined by Matthews Southwest President Jack Matthews, who updates us on the high-speed rail project they're developing in partnership with Texas Central that would connect Dallas and Houston. Sean Ryan of JLL also chats with us about conduit debt obligations and gives a quick look around the capital markets. As always, be sure to subscribe to the show if you're checking us out for the first time, and follow Trek on social media. We've linked to our handles in the show notes. With that, here's our latest CRE Executive Roundtable right here on TrackCast. All right, well, um, what time? We're four minutes after. So, hey, Jack Matthews has been gracious enough to to, uh, come on the call. I thought it would, Jack, it'd be nice to kind of uh, get an update on what's going on with the, uh, with your project, like, you know, it's looking very real. I'd love to know timing, what you think the impact is, how real it is, what's going on. The, uh, I'll just, I'll just uh, give a quick review and you can ask me any questions you'd, you'd like. So um, right now you got, you know, political things happening in Washington. Um, Abe stepped down a couple weeks back. Looks like Suge is coming in as a prime minister there, which I think is good news for us. It's, um, you know, the, the deal is basically we have about 70% of the hard costs fixed. We have about 40% of the right-of-way uh, purchased or will be purchased in the near future. The, um, the, ec- the economics of it, um, you know, basically when COVID came in, about $3 billion of equity reduction on here. Equity is starting to slowly um, come back and look, but that, that big equity is still very nervous. Um, we're dealing right now with two different groups that want to bring significant equity, and we're in the we're in the need of about three billion dollars. The um, from a from a reality standpoint, you know, the thing got a lot. A lot more real, if that's, if that's the proper English, in the sense that all the permits wow. and so it is now it is now law that we can run a train on a certain route between Dallas and Houston at uh, you know a, a speed of 230 miles an hour. And before that, the fastest you could op- operate a train was about 110 miles an hour by law. And so that, that has changed. Um, all the environmental permits are uh, completed. And so we, and we have a, uh, you know, a right-of-way that's been agreed to. So it's, um, the, the last thing to do is to do the financial close. And what we need to do the financial close is a, federal government lining up with a Japanese government. And that's, uh, that's been a struggle. But it's, um, I, I think the Japanese were shocked that we got all our approvals. Uh, they didn't expect that before the election. And so right now they are absolutely scrambling. Every night there are calls going on through the night to 
you know, put this thing together. But it's um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting position in a project. So, have I told you what you wanted to hear, or what questions you wanted to ask? Their product, or wh why are they involved? Maybe I'm an Sorry, I, idiot. I didn't hear the beginning of. I didn't hear the beginning of the question. What was that? Jack, why is the Japanese government involved? Oh, they've been they've been involved since the very beginning. So do they, they want to own it? No, they don't want to own it. They're almost allergic to owning it. Um, no, it all started with Texas. Uh, sorry, not Texas Central with the uh, Japan Central Railways. Their chairman. He basically hired a group out of Washington to look at some, I forget it was, 50-some-odd routes in the U.S., and that was seven, eight years ago before I got involved. Um, they have funded probably of the uh, round numbers of $600 million spent to date. They've probably funded 350 of it. Wow. Yeah, they've always, always been there, but they've never wanted to control it. But they, they well, have a system, the best system in the world, and they want to export the system. They've been terrible at exporting it and, um, because the Chinese have just run them over as far as getting that system out, and this is their response to that. And where does a guy like you go, go raise $3 billion? Well, already I mean, my wife, and she said no. <laughs> I mean, but, I mean, is that... Is that do you get it from the government or do you go? Hey, no, through? I'm a listen. I'm a I'm a small piece of this, right? I'm but I'm right. on the land side, right? So it's uh, at the end of the day, you know, my money would be less than one percent of the deal, right? But it's um, it's the stations I really care about, right? It, you don't have station unless you got a system. So it's um, no city Citibank is uh, M M M U F G is. Um, run that side of it, and they were they were on a great course up until you know February. But and is it easy? Gonna, is it easy to see that this train will make money once if once it's real? Is it is it a money maker for those people taking that kind of risk? Okay, so it's it's utilities. So utilities generally. On the pro formas, the equity, you know, should make in the ten percent range, mm -hmm. which doesn't sound great until you see utilities trading at sub five. Right. And the difference with this utility is not every other utility out there almost is on a you know fifty year, sixty year lease on the land or license from a government, and this one has a infinite life in that sense. Does any, yeah, anybody on on the on the call have any questions for Jack about the the train? Any issues? Jack, can you go over the timing again, please? I would love to know the timing, Linda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd last heard obviously before COVID that you were looking at groundbreaking before end of year. Yeah, we were we were basically trying to get um, every everything done at the end of the last year. And that that did not come together. 
the um, you know in the financing deal, you know if you can if you can underwrite 15 people want to put up 10 or 12. We were going through that when the world came apart. Um, I actually think we would have come to a deal, you know, if we had survived into March or so. The um, your question is on timing. You tell me when we can start. So we're we can start really about 60 to 90 days after we know when the when the uh, financial closes. We've got Fellini out of Italy. Is the they're the outside of the Chinese, they're the number one builder of uh, high-speed rail in the world. And they've given us fixed-price contract. Um, there, we've got the Spanish, who really operate some of the best high-speed rail in the world as an operator. So the Spanish government is involved, the Italian government is involved, and the the Japanese government is involved. Um, the Japanese being the being the lead. And it's, um, but you know, they're all exporting, you know, construction management or system. So to, to answer your question is five years after we get uh, that go ahead, we can start. We can start selling tickets and having people on trains. I can't wait. <laughs> Ray, it looked like you were going to ask a question there. Did you have something? Yeah, I was just going to say maybe he could tell us something about the state he wants to do downtown, all the economic development explosion that's got. Because I think that's a big part of what they're doing. Yeah, so, so basically the economic development side of it is the, the real estate at the end of the day really will dwarf the the train in dollars, um, but it takes time to for that all to come together. But you're really pulling the, you know, center of, of Houston west, and you're pulling the center of Dallas south. And it's um, it's you know pretty conservative estimate that 50,000 people coming in and out of that station every single day. Um, but the nice thing about it is not like American Airlines where they're all coming in and out the same same night. It is a constant trickle, 18 hours a day. So it's, you know, 400 in, 400 out um, constantly. And it's, um, it re really invigorates a, uh, an area. But it's, it's hotels, it's offices, it's, it's a lot of residential. So Ray, is that the, is that the answer you're looking for? general it is if, if that's one you want to give but I think it's going to be uh, more economics and people give it uh, credit for with the hotels and just and creating Dallas and Houston uh, you know versus like Fort Worth which will not have the uh, a station or some other areas it's just Dallas College Station and Houston being the hub we're gonna I think draw more into the to our dense urban areas. So it's just a comment. Yeah, I think people people will start living differently because it's there. And I think you'll find people in College Station that are 30 minutes from Houston, 45 minutes from Dallas, give or take. Um, and that's not a bad place to be all of a sudden. Totally changes that location. 
And then when you connect Austin and San Antonio, the 90% of the population of the state is within 60 miles of the station. It really changes the dynamics of how the, how the state works. So basically it creates some of the biggest economies by connecting the two big cities, Dallas and Houston in the world. Yeah, you've got the fourth and fifth largest um, economies in, in the United States really turn into one. And if you add San Antonio and, and Austin, it's even, it's, it's off the charts. But it changes in the sense of how easy it is to get from place to place. But, um, it's fascinating to me that it hasn't already happened. Especially when you look at the, the cost of roads. We'll save TxDOT in 10 years um, from spending exactly what we'll spend on the uh, on high-speed rail. And you so, get... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was gonna ask you the travel time to like Austin, San Antonio, and Houston. So right Each now, uh, Houston without a stop is seven, seven minutes. Um, with a, a stop adds about 11 minutes. And it's, um, you know, Austin will be probably about the same, a little bit less than uh, Houston, but not much. And San Antonio a little bit more than that, so. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That will change it. Anybody else, any other questions for Jack? Jack, I appreciate it, very much appreciate it. I, I uh, have so much respect for somebody that has big vision like you do and uh, to take on something like this. And I just think it's uh, awesome for our city. And uh, I, you know, it's wonderful that we are blessed to have you in the city. And I appreciate you joining the call. No, no problem. I'll, uh, I'll take, I'll, I'll accept that once we get it done. Meantime, right. it's a long, hard slog. Yeah, I just love the fortitude of uh, taking it on. It's awesome. And if you got any good office sites, once it's real, don't forget me. <laughs> I'll, I'll try. I'll try to <laughs> Okay, so. I'm taking out your territory. All right. Thank you. Okay, next up is Sean Ryan. Um, I called uh, I called Trey Morsbach and I said, Trey, you know, I kind of think I'd love to have somebody on the call. I keep hearing about all the conduit debt problems uh, where there's people raising big money to go buy debt. And uh, I said, Trey, who, who's the guy? And he goes, Sean Ryan. So uh, he hooked me up with Sean and you can see which, if you're looking at Sean, he played for the Cowboys. You've got his number. Is that your number back behind you there, Sean? It is. It is. Awesome. So, so and, and so Sean and I have been talking, and Sean, what, what I'm looking for or what the group I'd love you to cover is, you know, is there an opportunity buying debt? I mean, is it just conduit or banks and life companies all discounting? Is it only retail and hotel-type assets, or is it across the board? You know, it is the opportunity now, or is it coming, or is there one? I mean, anything like that that you could kind of give the group, and then we'll open it up to questions after that. Uh, absolutely, and I appreciate you guys having me on. I think the 
interesting thing where we sit today and uh, I don't know how many other people have found themselves saying interesting and normalcy and return to some kind of, uh, of understanding of what's going on in the market. So I've looked up a lot of uh, synonyms and nothing really fits the bill quite as well. But uh, I think it's just a, a very kind of fascinating time that we sit, find ourselves in right now where there's uh, two ends of the spectrum, very barbell right now. And it's not just with the conduits, um, but if you look at the balance sheet lenders as well, because of the fact they have long-term debt positions, uh, life goes more than the banks. Um, but clearly there's things have, you know, quote unquote changed over the dynamics of the real estate market, uh, depending on you know, what asset class or what market you're in over the last 10 years. So if you look at someone who did 10-year debt and CMBS 2.0 started in 2010, so a lot of that stuff is coming to maturity today. Uh, Life codes were lending back then as well. Uh, and then some of the banks who had longer term um, credit positions, the dynamics of those pieces of real estate have changed significantly, whether they be you know, more in vogue today or less in vogue because of the market that they would find themselves in or because of the asset type that they were. A lot of a lot of malls were financed either through banks, life codes, and conduit in 2010, 11, 12, and 13. The capital markets really don't exist for an execution of those at the same levels that they were at. Clearly, we all know, you know, front and foremost, J.C. Penney being in our market um, as you know, big following from there. But a lot of the anchor tenancies um, that have had their issues, along with kind of the inline space as well. So just the deterioration in value still might be a necessity mall or quality retail asset, but just the dynamics have changed overall. So with that said, I think the biggest thing that people have to consider is what kind of risk you're going to take and take on. Um, and with buying debt, and for those that have bought debt before, completely understand it, it's much harder to quantify and qualify the risk that you're taking on because you don't have the same transparency that you would as buying a fee simple asset. You can't legally uh, tour the asset. I couldn't go take you through an office building that we're selling the loan on because there's lender liability issues. I can't take you in the back of the house to show you the systems. You might be dealing with a PCR from five, 10 years ago that outlined a number of capital issues. Um, you can't just go up on the roof and check to make sure that things are working in an order. So you have to quantify that risk through whatever kind of uh, premium that you're putting on the position. Now that said, I think there's interesting things to think about in terms of basis, right? What you feel like is a good basis for the yields that you're targeting on a debt position, uh, understanding that if my wife's joining the call, so she can wave as well. <laughs> but the, the fun things about working from the house, right? So, um, but that said, that basis being above everything. And I think what's interesting to be said is even as some of these positions have maybe deteriorated, when they were originated, they were originated at pretty good bases and those have amortized down. So there's opportunity if you do end up going in and owning the asset. Um, but all that said, I think where the two biggest opportunities are, and um, Mark Gibson was talking about this the other day, hotel, uh, hospitality and retail, right? We, we've seen the headlines big time, but that doesn't just mean the mall space and that just doesn't mean, you know, kind of 20 year, somewhat functionally obsolete full service hotels now. There's a lot of opportunity in major markets where there was some overbuilding being done, uh, maybe some assets that cannibalized other ones. Um, now where there's markets where you're getting less uh, travel, uh, at least in the short term, are you willing to take that risk today for the opportunity that you make an outsized yield uh, as the markets start coming back? 
I think we all know or all would say that at some point in time, New York City is going to come back as a travel destination for most people, just like other major markets around the world. Uh, in the short term, those hotels are feeling a lot of pain. Right? So where is their opportunity to then go and maybe buy a hotel position either as an REO or as a loan uh, with the thought process that, hey, you know, maybe it struggles in the short term. I, as an unregulated buyer, an unregulated entity, can give a little bit more um, modification to the loan or extension to the loan without taking, uh, holding back uh, capital against it as a life co or bank would, uh, and let the let the sponsors uh, move forward and do do right by me, and I get a better yield because of the risk that I took on. I think the other interesting thing, if you look at hospitality in particular, interesting that uh, College Station came up because there's a, a, bl a very good example of that. It's a smaller hotel, uh, but the group that came in and buy it is buying it as doing assisted living. So taking a great basis on a hotel and turning it into assisted living because that market was saturated with hotel product, this is a little bit more of an older product, lesser quality brand. So someone sitting there and say, hey, the efficiencies already exist for me to change that into assisted living, which is much more needed. We also but, sold, so, but uh, what kind of a discount would that guy, I mean, what, what kind of discounts are you seeing? Is, so like, if you can't go view the asset, the discount needs to be where the buyer feels safe. I mean, are these significant discounts? Are they 50%, 40%, 30%? I know it's asset by asset, but. Yeah, um, I would say that it's, it ranges. It's a wide. This is going to be a wide range, so uh, bear with me on it. But it ranges from about fifty percent to uh, twenty-five percent of the top end, so seventy-five percent of seventy-five cents on the dollar to about fifty. Uh, and I think where you get to fifty is where you go into real. Hey, this is a real basis play that I am coming in at a great basis that I have optionality on the asset. Uh, I use fifty as an example. We sold a deal in Baltimore where we've sold it for 50 cents on the dollar uh, debt position, 375 key hotel that they're going to transition into assisted living and affordable housing. So uh, the basis was that much more attractive to them. Oh, is that me? Give them feedback. Maybe that's me. They keep telling me it's me. Uh, but it's, you know, I think where the yields are for buyers today on the debt is somewhere in that 25 to 30 cent discount. Uh, for buyers of the real estate, it's a little bit further uh, with the thought process on basis more than anything else. Retail has gotten even worse. So I would say that if you, and in retail, I, I've used this and, and Barry Brown will probably smack me through the phone if you heard me say uh, retail has gotten worse. But Clearly, there's a lot of core product. We've all seen the Amazon, Whole Foods grocer, HEB in specific markets doing fantastically. Anyone that's actually gone to the grocery store, uh, it's they're packed. It's a little bit more of a, you know, in today's market environment, uh, probably more of a dangerous prop, uh, proposition than doing anything else because of how packed they are. Clearly, they're doing a, you know, a huge sales job because people aren't going out to restaurants as much. Um, so you have the really core stuff that's going to trade significantly tight. And I think where people are going to focus, uh, a lot of core capital is going to focus. And then you have the opposite end of the spectrum where malls uh, are trading significantly wider for the risk and much more on kind of cash on cash in place today. But the short, you know, inter, um, in the intermediate space, excuse me, yeah, I think you have a lot of shop space, unanchored tenancy. I know the Crow Holdings and some others have gone after that type of of products over the last couple of years in that five to $10 million range. 
a lot of that stuff was financed through CMBS because it was more mom and pop ownership at the time. Those people have struggled through this timing and someone who has institutional ownership and relationship, I think can do a great job in retenanting those assets and buying at uh, such a level, either basis or you know, in place yield today that they can pop those uh, significantly well, well, into stabilizing in the double digits. Well, okay, are the best deals behind us or in front of us? And where do people go to go find these opportunities? I mean, I, I, think, I think the best deals are, are definitely in front of us uh, because I think where there's gonna be a lot of, there's already a lot of pain in the CMBS market. Where we're starting to see a lot of that pain is in the, in the uh, LifeCo and bank market. Uh, where people are starting to work through and recognize that things are not going back to normal as fast as they would like them to. Clearly, as we all know, CMBS was created to provide liquidity at higher leverage in secondary and tertiary markets for uh, more risky asset types. So those ones are going to be the first ones to break. A lot of people sold their assets into CMBS. So as they've been hurt by COVID, they're ready to hand keys back or aren't ready to <clears throat> put good money after bad. Uh, in the bank market and the life co market, again, as I was saying earlier, long-term balance sheet stuff, that stuff is turned where we just saw sold an asset or loan on an asset in Colorado, quality office building, um, sponsor lost, uh, sponsor did the loan in 2012 uh, with a life insurance company, lost a major tenant, which took them down to 50% occupancy, have not been able to backfill that. Uh, they have somewhat of a liquidity crunch and capital crunch. And then recently, their portfolio was much more leisure and hospitality and has been impaired and impacted by COVID. Uh, so while they were going into COVID covering not based on cash flow, all of a sudden they said, hey, you know what? It's not worth us spending the time or the money. And the life coach said, yeah, well, we're not getting relief from regulatory entities, so it's time for us to sell the loan. That said, I think the uh, new owner of that loan bought it at a yield that is commensurate with the risk if the borrower continues to pay. And if they don't, you're in a market like Colorado where you can foreclose out pretty quickly. Uh, so a lot less risk on the foreclosure. And a lot of times in life insurance company loans, if you do bankruptcy, then you trip bad boy carve-outs um, and recourse uh, covenants and others. So the opportunity exists for really a optionality of either end and, and buying at a better yield. I think where people have gotten themselves more educated now has been in the form that they understand the risk associated with buying the debt and also understand the ownership. It's no longer you know, the old adage, uh, two guys behind a Bloomberg terminal that are buying debt and just pricing it um, based on a yield that they might get when they buy a commodity or some other trade. Now it's much more real estate focused uh, and people understanding the risks. Okay, so like when a package goes out, are you beating pricing? I mean, like when you when you kind of ballpark what you think is going to happen, do you have a lot of buyers? And is there a lot of I, I my view is there's a ton of money out there just waiting. So are you getting yep. better pricing than expected or about where you think? I underwrite things pretty conservatively. So we've been able to hit our midpoint, if not exceed on most things. Uh, and I think that there's a thought process that you have to be a little bit more conservative in your underwriting overall. That's worked to our benefit now because, like you said, there is so much capital in the system and people chasing opportunities. Uh, for the most part, and, and I don't know everyone on this phone, but I would say for the most part, I think most people are behind on whatever their allocations were desired um, output was for the year. So if people want to get deals done before the end of the year, they might stretch a little bit. And in, as we've seen in competitive processes and anyone that's been a seller that's been happy to have this, 
uh, people get a, go a little bit above where they might traditionally want to buy the asset uh, for the thought process of putting out an equity check. But, but you think pricing is going to get better for the acquirer next year than it is right now? Or you think there's going to be more opportunity? I think there's going to be more opportunity. Uh, and I think that there's going to be more capital chasing it as well. So a little bit of both. Uh, clearly, there's going to be a lot of um, smaller commodity style hotel product that comes through the market. I think that probably pricing depresses a little bit on that because there's going to be a governor uh, because that's going to, a non-institutional buyer pool that's playing in that space. Uh, so they're not raising institutional capital. For the most part, it's friends and family money. Uh, but for the stuff that's north of 10 and then definitely north of $20 million, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are chasing those opportunities uh, and because there's been less uh, active in the space in the short term and people have been raising capital. Now we've seen a couple of the groups who were some of the larger buyers back in the great financial crisis uh, then become became lenders for a long time. Prime Finance, Varde, and others uh, became lenders, but for a long time were buying debt as well as part of their program. Uh, they've raised capital for special situations, as they would call it, right? So maybe it's more um, condo lending or other things that they're getting a little bit better yield, construction meds, but being able to be kind of fungible and creative in the way that they deploy their capital. Uh, most recently, we saw groups like Mesa West who have separate accounts. We've always known Mesa West as being a very um, lower leverage, uh, you know, lack of, I shouldn't say, you know, lower leverage, more debt yield, transitional lending versus maybe an Acor. Acor has a couple buckets of money. Mesa West was very down the middle of the fairway. Now they're going into the space where they're looking at maybe buying debt opportunities or doing note-on-note -note financing. So I think there's a lot more creative capital in the system today that's going to push uh, I wouldn't say prop up pricing because I think we we got propped up for a while over the last couple of years more because of the foreign trade where people were finding seeking shelter in the United States and, and pushing core markets to be maybe a little bit overvalued. I don't think we're going to get to an overvalued standpoint, but I think we're going to get to a point where that the capital forces people to be a little bit more, a little bit less conservative on underwriting. Um, I think we saw that in the debt fund space where a lot of the groups who were using CLO and other uh, financing mechanisms that were very accretive were able to underwrite more aggressively. And then once they got into competitive processes, they went over and above. There was traditionally always, and I see, I see Trey on here, and he, he knows this better than anybody. There was, uh, there was typically, I wouldn't say always, there was typically an outlier, whether that be by 10 basis points or 50 basis points, or in the way that they structured their loan, people wanted to get equity out. So right now, I think we're there's going to be good opportunities, um, but a lot of capital that the people are going to get a little bit more aggressive. So let me, Sean, let me let, open it up to the group. Does anybody have any questions of Sean? Somebody want to run a question by him on debt? You know, one thing. Not that like, smart. I couldn't have answered everyone's question. I, I, I banged no my head into walls for a living, so I definitely missed something. Well, because, like, for me, I, I mean, this hasn't been fun, but it hasn't been terrible. And, you know, and, and I, I kind of feel like um, it's not as bad as everybody th expected. And, I'm, I, you know, I'm an optimist because I'm a developer, but, but, um, and everybody says this big dark cloud's coming next year. I kind of think we start recovering. 
And I mean, I know there's going to be pain, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, are you seeing a lot of it in office? I mean, is office a fairly large percentage of what you're seeing? Depends on the market, right? So if you're in the energy corridor in Houston, there's been yeah. a tremendous amount of pain. There's going to be a huge reset of the base. Well, right? we're, we're, yeah, we're out in the market right now with a couple of specific assets that are very large, you know, over 400,000 square feet that we're in servicing. Um, and there's going to be a reset of the base seats on those assets. One was uh, a two tenant, you know, massive uh, structure that's going to need a ton of capital to get it back on online. Another deal is, about 50% occupied, um, multiple buildings. So a little bit less, you can go multi-tenant or single tenant in those. So a little bit easier of a sell. Uh, but in a market like Houston, where there was a tremendous amount of building and then a lot of consolidation by larger companies, uh, there's gonna be some significant pain, especially in the outer corridor. Um, I would say that in, in Dallas, we haven't seen the same. Now there's been a little bit that we've seen um, in CBD which is not surprising, I think, to most on the phone, right? People have migrated a little bit outside, whether it be Uptown or other markets uh, that have grown and either for a value proposition like a Las Colinas or, uh, you know, the Dallas North Tollway, I think of like the Quorum area and others or gone further north uh, for single tenant opportunities or gone where, you know, there's more rooftops and ability to attract um, employees CBD had struggled, but, uh, you know, and I don't know if Andrew's on the phone and I don't want to misquote any stats, but the CBD in, in Dallas has struggled for some time now. Uh, yeah, I've got a real well down there to eat. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, with, when people look, work for the live, uh, excuse me, look for the live, work, play type atmosphere, and that's not unique to Dallas. That's a lot of CBD markets. I, I spent a lot of my time in Boston, um, and the seaport has now been the beneficiary of what, Boston downtown can't provide because it's a mass, you know, quote unquote master plan community where they've done the apartments, they've done a lot of restaurants, they've done all this other stuff that marries up well and synchronizes well with bringing in you know, huge workforces to that area. So, I, you know, where I think that there's going to be some, some definite pain is in markets where there's been a real push away from, you know, specific um, corridors or specific assets. Uh, product types in those markets, uh, CBD office or energy corridor office or yeah. others uh, are going to be, you know, they're going to be left behind or they're going to be in an opportunity where you can reset the basis on those. So if you have, you know, going back to my previous comment, uh, you know, the risk on mentality, if you want to take a look at that, and we had a great, um, one, a very good client of, of the firm and Trace specifically was on one of our calls a couple weeks ago. And they're going full risk on uh, into you know, downtown Dallas and uh, yeah. recreating a very nice asset and doing it such that they're, they're putting more than just office in there, right? They're, they're creating yeah. that live, work, play because there's so much square footage at the asset and it doesn't all need to be office. So opportunities like that where you can work through the hair or slog through kind of the dregs and the muck, as, as Jack was talking about, the, the timing and the process might be a little bit unknown. But if you're willing to spend the time and slog through it, uh, there's, you know, I think there's opportunities yeah. on the back end that could be truly beneficial. Yeah, I think the gap between uptown and downtown is crazy. You know, I mean, I, I think downtown eventually gets there. I'm just saying at my age, you know, I'd be senile by the time I could turn it around probably if I could. 
But Trey, you're looking like you want to say something. Jump on. <clears throat> no, first I was going to remind Sean that, that he must have missed the memo that we're working on like four big pieces of business in CBD. So he needs to change his narrative around uh, <laughs> CBD. Um, and, but no, and then he came around to good recovery there. Because as you know, we work on a lot of stuff down there. And I think he's right. You know, you, you asked the question about office. He pivoted to, you know, CBD is a whole longer conversation that probably deserves a whole nother call by itself. Because I think there's a lot of positive things going on down there. And it's, it's a combination of office and other things. So that, that is what it is. And I was going to comment earlier just on your optimism, Bill, because I appreciate it. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I agree that most would say that, particularly in North Texas, that this has not been as bad as perhaps we thought it could have been in early March and April. Um, certainly the capital markets have recovered in a meaningful way. And we feel good about that. Transactional activity has picked up in a meaningful way. I think there's, we all know there's a lot of reasons that aren't necessarily fundamental driven that have supported this market, mostly out of Washington, um, with fiscal and monetary support of unprecedented levels. And I think it's, that's the question that you're hearing people wonder about. Like, what is 2021 going to look like when we don't have all that? So it's going to, are we going to time it just perfectly to where the recovery is going to offset all that and we're going to be fine? Or is the real pain going to be felt because everything else has been masked for the last six to 12 months? So. And I, I don't have that answer. Um, I, I hope you're right. I, I hope that, that we can kind of bridge this um, and come out in 21 and, to, and more of a recovery. And hopefully the stimulus has gotten us enough uh, momentum to do that. I, I do think that we're going to see some more pain and distress, particularly as it relates to certain sectors. And look, the financial institutions were given a hall pass to give borrowers a lot of free latitude in, 20, in, in calendar year 20. I don't believe the regulators are going to give them that same level of, of, of flexibility going into 21, which means we're just going to have more banks and lenders be more difficult with their borrowers. And Sean's well aware because he's talking to a lot of those lenders already telling them to get ready. So I, I, I think there will be more, I think the whole comment around stress moving to distress is going to happen in 21. We'll see. Questions from the group? All right, Bill, Sean, I, just I appreciate said, it. Uh, oh, Bill, I sent you ahead. a text. I'm sorry. I sent you a text about the uh, distressed malls, BC malls owned by the public REITs. Sean, if you can elaborate. We see most of that just going over back to the lenders. And You, know, you mentioned the malls before, the CBLs of the world and WPG, Starwoods. Yeah, and, and I'm sure people saw the, the news this morning where it became official that Starwood lost a large portfolio. We've been tracking a lot of that already, uh, you know, most notably in our market, Willow Bend, um, but that was already the servicer. So a lot of stuff to that effect. Clearly, I shouldn't say clearly, but Starwood, KKR, and others got into that trade back in 2014 and 15 um, and wasn't, weren't the beneficiary, even on assets that they did very well with. And where they're coming up uh, short today is just the debt capital markets aren't available to refinance those assets at a level that's accretive to them. Uh, some of the assets, and if you talk to Dave Monahan, who runs our mall sales practice, kind of interesting, a deal that he was working on specifically that uh, KKR was a sponsor on. They actually took, got Sears out. Uh, they bought Saratage out of the position. They put a Whole Foods in, they put a couple other really quality tenants, they improved the NOI, but at the same time that they were improving the NOI, I think by actually $2 million in growth, the cap rate widened out just in general because people were 
putting a, a higher premium on malls. So the value itself went down, even though the NOI was improving. Clearly, a ton of capital spent to get there as well. Um, when you look at the C, when I look at the CBLs and I look at the WPGs, I mean, for a long time coming, right? WPG and looking in retrospect, right? Simon uh, divested their malls that they didn't want anymore to WPG, and then WPG divested and, and or bifurcated into an A and B. You know, they're they're less quality malls and they're more quality malls that they want to spend time in. But that didn't differentiate the fact that they still had in a lot of those malls Sears, J.C. Penney, Macy's, Dillard's. Belt, others that are going through their struggles uh, right now, and then a lot of those they didn't control them, and for a lot of time, for a long time they didn't want to control them. And now you look back and say, when you look at trying to redevelop really a quality piece of real estate, and there's one right along 635 that we all know well, where just different ownership fractions have caused dislocation and disruption in the ability to redevelop a phenomenal site uh, for future use. Now it's become a huge impediment. Right, so even when we go and we value these deals for the special servicers or the lender in general, it's just a very tough ask because of the lack of control. And then what is actually in place today, and how is that uh, lack of control of of tenants that are actually impairing your cash flow stream as well? So, uh, just in general, we've seen a lot from CBL. CBLs turn the keys back on a number. Simon's turned the keys back on a couple. You would think Simon, Brookfield, others, you know, best of the best, um, but they're culling and managing their portfolios just like every lender that we've talked to is doing as well and trying to figure out where they better, they best spend their time recognizing that there's deals that, uh, as one of my partners would, come, would say, they're, that they're going to live on and then there's others that are going to die on the vine and we're the ones that you can bring back from the dead, right? We all know the, the North Parks of the world and others. Uh, that there's always going to be a need and they're going to continue to be proactive in the way that they recreate that experience, as we all know. And then there's going to be Irving malls, right? Better as something else, it's kind of the in-between, right? Where are the ones that you can recreate or revitalize uh, with a little bit of capital that someone's willing to spend the time on? And then in that space, if you have a CBL or a WPG or others who don't have the capital or, or more liquidity starved, then that's where I think there's, you know, going back to the original comment, the risk on, that's where there's an opportunity for someone else to come in who maybe has those institutional relationships or has that capability. That's what the market thought about your mall commentary. Yeah, yeah your, your dog doesn't agree with you. <laughs> so any, any other questions? Out that Amazon is not, not breaking into my house. I, I heard a prediction from a pretty astute retail investor last week that, he thinks we'll end up with 200 malls in America. And there's over a thousand currently, just to give people an order of magnitude. You're on mute, Bill. Colleen, you're on mute. If you think about that, Trey, the interesting part about of in those thousand malls or 1200 malls, whatever there is, right, that goes down to 200, there's a lot of really quality institutional ownership of those malls that are no longer that those their malls that they bet heavily on simon brookfield others right that we all know well that are no longer there's no longer going to be a need or for that existence so right. it's kind of interesting right we all know the lesser quality lower end of the spectrum cbls and the wpgs that we already talked about but to the higher end of the spectrum we think we are a lot of people have thought the ggps and others that are that are great at what they do and they are but they still have things in their portfolio so that's what we're focused mostly is even life insurance companies, again, 
going back to the earlier comment, 10 years ago, the dynamics of the real estate market were different than they are today for certain asset classes. They're looking at culling and managing through those just like an ownership entity is as well. Well, but I, I agree I mean, earlier. I was sorry, but I was going to say I agree earlier with Trey. I think the stress and distress right now because of whether it be regulatory environment or just feel bury the head in the sand and not worry about my problems. Uh, 2021 is where people are going to start having to actually make decisions on what they sell. Uh, and then the regulatory environment is going to impact them significantly, both on the LifeCo side and the bank side, because they won't want to hold the capital against it. Right? CISO requirements and others that have now come online uh, that are going to be a further impairment uh, to that capital structure are going to force them to probably be more active sellers sooner rather than later. Okay. Anybody else question? Sean, thanks. Appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay. So I just thought the last five or 10 minutes, we kind of open it up to the group. Uh, anybody on the call have a question for anybody on the call, like, or any topic they want to cover or kind of an open mic type deal. And if not, I'll give you your day back. Okay. Well, then this is over. Thank you for being on the call, Sean. I appreciate you very much. Trey, good seeing you. Yeah, likewise. Sorry, I was like. Everybody have a good day. Hey, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this a month from now instead of every two weeks. I think every two weeks might be a little bit too much. So uh, uh, October 14th is the next date, and we'll send out a meeting invite. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Bye. That's it for today's show. I'd like to thank our CRE Executive Roundtable guests, Jack Matthews and Sean Ryan, for their insights. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow Trek on social media. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.